You're listening to a sermon from Garden City Church in Beaumont, California. For more information, visit GardenCityChurch.co. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's open our Bibles there if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What we like to do at Garden City, if you're new here to the church, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. It's our way of honoring God, respecting the Lord as he's speaking into our hearts. We close our eyes when we pray. Hopefully you do because the Bible is very clear. No, I'm just kidding. My kids are looking around as we're praying at the dinner table and eating their food already. I'm like, you've got to close your eyes. Um, I don't actually say that, but I feel it sometimes. And uh, so our way of closing our eyes when we pray so we can focus, this is our way of being able to focus when we read scripture together so that we can understand a little bit of what we are reading Let's read it together, verses 1 through 16. It's a mouthful. If you don't understand it, that's why I've prepared a sermon to help break it down a little bit more for you. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, quoting Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions that he came to earth? Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus, John 3. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, into the world so that we might have everlasting life. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave to some the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. If you notice very quickly in verse 1, this is a run-on from last week. We talked about this idea of having the source of our strength, being God the Father, we had the strength. What is this strength? Well, Paul says that it's the spirit of Christ who is in us because he has risen from the dead. We now have the same power that rose Christ from the dead living inside of us. 
superpower, Marvel-like, DC-like. I don't know where you're at on that spectrum of loving DC or Marvel. That's not the point. The point is that there is this uniqueness to what Paul is calling us to. And he says, therefore, I'm a prisoner. Literally, he's in chains. He's writing these letters from prison. He's in jail. And he says, you guys have also been called to something very unique and very interesting, but you have to also know that you're not imprisoned like I am. And so he's saying, you need to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. If I am able to walk worthy by being imprisoned in chains, how much better, how much stronger are you not shackled by chains? If you weren't here last week, you can listen to the podcast. You can watch the video on our YouTube channel. You remember we talked about the source, the strength, and the sustainer. And really, this is the evidence of a relationship with God. That if you are finding yourself moving further and further away from worldly patterns and closer and closer to the patterns of Christ, you are defined as someone in relationship to God. Even though we have the life of God in us, we can at times live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, and maybe you've asked yourself, or maybe you've been asked by someone else, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, some of us may have grown up in the church, like myself. Maybe you know the Bible. Maybe you know all the answers. But if someone came to you right now and said, hey, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What sort of answer would you give to them? Well, we can refer back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. It'll come up on the screen so you can look at this list. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be someone who recognizes that God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace that we have been saved, and, verse 6, we have been raised up together Notice how interesting that language is that Paul uses to say, you've been raised up to Christ, but he says, Christ raised us up, meaning that there is a unity that must exist inside of the church. And now we see down in verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him. I recognize that even in my own family, my girls, almost nine and seven, are growing up. They don't like to play with the same toys. They don't want to take baths. They want to take showers. They are feeling more getting into their womanhood. They are recognizing that Barbies are not as cool as Pokemon cards are now. We are seeing our kids grow up before our very eyes. And there are indicators of that. They're starting to have more feeling and emotion for a friend that said something to them that they didn't like and they would cry and come to us. What happened? Well, someone hurt my feelings. Well, what did they say? Well, they just said, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And it was like, well, it's not because they don't want to be your friend. It's because there's something going on and you guys need to figure out how to work this thing out. Now, for me, as the general in our parenting, I'm very strict. I'm very this, this, and this. And if you don't do this, this, and this, then you're going to get this, this, and this. And you're like, I don't want to, I'm glad you're not my parent. Whereas my wife, she is very kind and compassionate and she is able to understand how to uh, speak at their level. Also, I grew up more with brothers 
I have an older sister, but we didn't really connect very well until recently. But I grew up with brothers, and so when we argued and fought, we fist fought. We threw things at each other, hoping that we would hit the head and not the wall behind, because then that meant not only was I going to get in trouble for the fight, but I was also going to get in trouble and have to patch up the drywall in my room. We see all these indicators of ways that we are growing up. So then the same question needs to be applied to our spiritual life. What indicators are there in my life that is allowing me to see that I'm growing in my relationship to Jesus? Now, it's not always an easy thing to recognize. If you're someone like me who likes to journal and likes to write things down, sometimes I will go back and look at the things I've written and like, wow, that was pretty amazing. How did I write that then? And how am I not thinking about that now? There are times when you realize that there are different markers to which you are growing up. And in the same way, you're not going to realize how much you're growing up overnight because not a lot of that exists. There are times when you will feel growing pains and you got to take the Motrin or you got to take the medicine to make sure that as a kid, you know, your bones are growing and things are happening. Your body is growing and you start to see these indicators. Well, what indicators can we find spiritually speaking that are going to allow us to see what it means to become a Christian and not just a believer, but a seasoned believer, a mature believer, or if you like to say mature, if you're all fancy, you know, pinkies out or whatever. The whole idea of growing in Christ is ultimately, little cheat sheet, that you are becoming more like Christ. That's really the definite answer. Well, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, because you're becoming more like Jesus. Well, how do I know what it looks like to become more like Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. But let me also under, let me help you understand something else a little bit. We cannot allow ourselves to be tempted to believe that growth happens overnight. That this amazing success goes from this thing that I had no knowledge of to waking up in the morning and all of a sudden, here it is. I'm 10 years into my marriage and I still am learning things about my wife. There are things in your friendships and in these relationships that you don't know about one another. And it's not until you get to spend time with them that you get to grow in your relationship to those people. The same with God. Don't think that because you're not seeing a difference or because you're not seeing the change you thought you would see, that what you're doing is a failure. And that's really where this idea comes from when we're going through that whole perseverance series in July, because we're seeing here that Christ is calling us to something greater. Christ is calling us to become something that we cannot become on our own. And how much of our culture and society says you have the power within you to become whatever you want to be. You see, when you become a Christian, let's get that straight, you were not born a Christian, okay? When you become a Christian, you may have grown up with Christian ideas and values in your home, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You may have Christian parents, you may listen to Christian songs, you may even go to a Christian school, and you wear Christian clothes, but you're not born a Christian. Nicodemus, a religious man who thought he was a Christian, but after investigative work found out he really wasn't, was told by Jesus that he must be born again. How, how does that work? Nicodemus was like, I can't get back into my mother's womb. That's not how that works. He's talking about his spiritual birth. It means that you have a point in time where you trusted and believed in Christ and his work upon the cross. Now listen, you don't have to know that date like it's written in stone but you remember a moment where you realized 
that the pattern you were following started to change. Where Christ is now the head and you are no longer the head and we are the body. Now here's something we don't always think about, but I hope it makes sense. The head, if you recognize your own head right now, we can do a little science, a little biology today. I I failed biology, so I'm not the best, but I think that this is pretty practical. Your head's not stapled to your body, right? Like now if that is like, let's talk later, like Ripley's, I believe it or not, like that's cool, whatever, Frankenstein mode or whatever. But we all understand that our head was not stapled to our body as if our head is autonomous from everything else. The head and the body share the same life. They share the same brain, nervous system, and blood. In verses four through six, we can look closely at what brings us closer together is that we share the same spirit, the same Lord, Jesus Christ, and we share the same God and Father. And because God is in us, that means we have the life of the Trinity in us. So it is not that Christ has become a head that is autonomous to the rest of your life, but that the head attached to the body, as it says in verses 14 through 16, that every joint working together is able to be a body. Now, you may not understand this. I didn't realize how fascinating this was. But as the moment you're thinking about stretching out your hand, your brain has already sent millions of signals to that joint, to your ligaments, on how to respond, how to catch a ball, how to speak words, all of that simultaneously happening without a hard drive or memory or RAM stored up in your body. It's just happening. And we're just kind of like, yeah, we get that. We understand that. But do, you, do we realize the concepts of what that means? If the head and the body are to work together, that means when Christ is the, is the head, I am the body and I therefore am being controlled by the same thing the head is being controlled by. That's what we talk about when we mean patterns and changing your way of thinking. Now, what makes you a Christian is not that you have morals or that you're a good person or that you believe that the Bible, although that is all true, you can read your Bible, you can pray to God, you can go to church, you can discuss those deeper things in your small group, but that doesn't make you a Christian. I don't know where the quote originated, but C.S. Lewis has been... uh, He's been known to quote this and other things. He says, only because I know that's as far as who quoted it, but he says, you can't be a car just simply by being in a garage. So no more can you be a car when you enter a garage than you can as a Christian entering a church. You can't just assume, well, because I'm going to church and because I do the things that therefore I must be a Christian. There has to be a decisive moment when you say, oh, shoot. I'm realizing that my life's patterns are needing to change and I'm starting to see a shift away from this pattern and into this one. And this means that you never think of Christianity or following Jesus as mainly a way of life. We can't believe for a moment that Christianity is just another religion on the dock and we get to pick which one we want to follow. It's not just a way of being nice and kind, although Paul says in verse 2 that being a believer in identity of what it means to be a Christian, verse 2, that you have humility, that you have a gentleness, that you are patient, and that you are bearing with one another in love. 
It sounds very familiar to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit. You may know those, and this is what Paul is referring to. If you want an indicator of what it means to be a Christian and whether or not you are lining up with that, it begins with humility, with gentleness, with patience, with bearing with one another in love. It doesn't say bearing with one another. It says do it lovingly. So don't insult the gospel by thinking of Christianity mainly as nice. Wow, what a nice concept. What an, what an original idea that someone would create this religion that puts a guy up on a cross and dies for the sins and apparently rises again from the dead. What a great idea. That concept sounds pretty cool. But being a Christian is not just something that makes you nice, it also makes you new. That's the difference. Because I can tell you, there are some religions out there who are pretty nice people. Mormons are pretty nice people. They're very clean, they're very kind, they're very generous. Buddhists are nice people. They think about peace and patience in our world. But just because it makes you nice doesn't mean it makes you new. See, that's the difference between Christ and all other religions. All other religions say, do this, this, and this, and you will become this, where Christianity says, Jesus was that for you, now go and follow him. You're alive. That's the beauty of following Jesus. There's a great power that has come into your life. You're awake, you are raised up, you are restored, you are made brand new. And the interesting thing about what it means to be a Christian can be found in Psalm chapter one. You can turn there if you want. I'm gonna read it to you, Psalm chapter one. This is one of the first things I ever memorized in my Sunday school. Six verses, Psalm one, it says, blessed or happy, joyful is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in a seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The indicator of someone who is not following Jesus are found in verses one and two of Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not. He does not walk with sinners. He does not walk with wicked counsel. Notice again, this relation to these ways of living. He does not walk. He does not stand. He does not sit. Because that's usually the, the, the progression of relationships. You start out face to face and like, hey, what's cool? Hey, nice to meet you. Okay, that's great. You walk, but then you start to stand. As you're walking, you slow down and you start, wait, hold on. You, you get a little more intentional with the person as they're talking about something. And then as you walk and as you stand, you start to become intrigued. Oh, that's interesting. Let's get lunch. Let's talk about that. And you sit down with those people. And you start to discover that you are intrigued by counsel of the wicked, by sinners in their ways, and by scoffers and sitting at a table with them. That is what you know to be a person who is not following the Lord. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and he meditates on it. And he's like a tree. He doesn't have to create a current. He is planted in the current. So the blessed, the happy person is the one who delights in the word of God and who meditates on it constantly. The evidence of that is being planted like a tree by streams of water. It's not looking for resources to tap into. It's not creating a stream because it's already connected to it. The fruit is ripe. It's producing it for everyone to enjoy and their leaf doesn't even wither. And here's the second part of the passage. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Hopefully we've divulged a little bit of that. Number two, who is a Christian? What, what does it mean for anyone to be a Christian, for anyone to believe in Christ? Verse 11 tells us that there are leaders in the church. And in fact, it calls them people who are evangelists, who are apostles, who are prophets, who are shepherds and teachers. Well, who can be a Christian then? Well, it's the person who was equipped, verse 12, the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So verse 11 tells us there are leaders in the church, equippers, if you want to call them that, pastors, teachers, evangelists. These are people who have equipping gifts who know how to equip the rest of the church for works of service, which is ministry. I hear some people say, well, my job is my ministry. Well, my family is my ministry. Sports is my ministry. And I don't disagree with that just so you know. Yes, your family is your ministry. In fact, even as leaders in the church, for myself and a few others of us who are elders, the Bible says that you cannot take care of the house of God if you can't take care of your own house as well. So I don't disagree with that sentiment. And yes, ministry can take place, but it cannot take the place of serving in the church. And that's why I bring it up because so often we use what we do out there as a reason for why we don't do things in here. And often that statement is made as to why people can't serve in the church. To be honest with you, it's a cop-out. What if, now just hear me out, what if the energy that you put into all of that can be used in a way here at the church? Well, if your job is your ministry, where are your coworkers? If your family is your ministry, how can you serve families here? If sports is your ministry, why aren't your teammates here? You see, often the things we call ministry outside of the church are the things that keep us from serving inside the church. We cannot get our priorities twisted. We often think about the things that we want to see in church. Pastor, we need a youth ministry. Okay, well, we've done that. Like, check that off the list. I'll wait for your next email on what else you want here at the church. Well, pastor, we need to evangelize more. Don't disagree with that. Yeah, keep doing that. We need more non-believers in the seats. Well, if you refer to previous point, then you will find more non-believers in these seats. Well, we need a basketball league. Well, we're working on that maybe. We've got a church over here who's got a gym. We can do that. Pastor, we need to do haircuts for the homeless. That's a great idea. I love that. I'm not a barber. I can buzz cut some people maybe, but I'm not about to give people haircuts because it won't look very good. Well, pastor, we need more worship leaders. We need more kids this, which actually, by the way, time out, pause. Here's a side sermon. We need more leaders in our kids ministry, okay? If you're not in kids ministry, what are you doing? You're like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of them. So am I, but I live with them. It's not that bad, okay? If you can give an hour and a half of your time to these kids, I guarantee you, you will be blessed. 
If two of those kids are mine and they get out of order, you know where to find me. You can let me know about them. But I'm telling you, those kids need direction. They are the next generation. They are the future. That's why we let the kids stay in here if they want, if they're going to listen. We want them to be in here. They are the church. That's why we're okay with the babies being in this room. A crying baby is an indicator of a church that's not going to die anytime soon. But often, we often don't want to be the person who does them. We want to have the idea, but we don't want to do all the work to execute it. Why? Because the Lord will bring someone better, someone more qualified, some expert in the field. No, he won't. He won't. At least here at Garden City, he won't. Because we believe under the impression of verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry means that we are to equip you. I'm not gonna hire an expert on discipleship. I'm not going to hire an expert on evangelism. I'm not going to hire an expert on kids' ministry because they already exist right in this room, right here, right now. And I have been a part of churches for too long who say, well, we need to have the best discipleship course on the face of the planet. Well, good luck with that because apparently you're building your own kingdom rather than the kingdom that matters. We cannot be about our own kingdom. We cannot hire experts on certain types of ministry. We don't hire for ministry. We have you. We have me. And this culture seems to have an obsession with professionalism. Let me point you to a book by John Piper called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. We are not supposed to be professionals in this room. And unfortunately, many Christians often live as if ministry is best left to the professional. Does a new convert need discipling? Let's call a church staff member. Well, those don't exist, so maybe you should take it. Does a sister need counseling? Find someone with a license. Well, none of us have licenses, so let's just talk about what the word of God says. Does your neighbor need to hear the gospel? Call the pastor over. Little revival on our street. No, that's why you're there. I'm trying to take care of my street. You take care of yours. What does it mean for a church community then when the leadership is viewed as the main channel of gospel work. Well, I'll tell you what, it burns out people, that's for sure. It can burn you out so fast. And that is how a church dies, my friends. When a name is attached to a church, that is when a church is seen its last breath. Who truly owns this concept of ministry? Well, the picture painted by the Bible is very different. Pastor's work is called ministry in the Bible, so that much is certain. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, fulfill your ministry. However, the biblical authors do not limit the term ministry to just ordained clergy or paid evangelists. Instead, every believer contributes to the ministry's efforts. You see, for Paul, the ministry of pastors and church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I've been asking my wife, like, what are some of the gifts that you have noticed in me over the last few years? And she says, well, you always have a discernment of where to plug people in where they can serve best. I didn't know that. I just see someone like, dude, you'd be great as an usher. You need to come start ushering people. You need to come start sitting them down. Dude, I don't know if you've ever played guitar, but you look like someone who used to play guitar. You should probably play guitar. And it's like, I've never played. Well, maybe you should go on YouTube and start looking at ways to play. I'm kidding. It's not that way. But there are ways in which there is a discernment about being able to recognize simply by what you post on social media, simply by what you give your time and your treasure to, 
that indicates what your giftings are. It's not very hard. Give me a week and I can probably figure out what your gift is. This is not some supernatural ability that I've created. This is the Holy Spirit giving me an opportunity to see how is this person being equipped? And if they're not, how can they be? And I apologize for those of you who have emailed me and I have not gotten back to you. I'm not very good at that, but I'm getting better, I hope. You see, one ministry serves the other. Pastors are the supply line. I'll lay everything out for you. Church members are the front line. Ministry belongs to the members. But don't get this twisted either. I'm not just going to give you the supply and say, now go and do it. I'll be there with you. I'll do it right there as well. You see, Christians often credit ministry to pastors because the supply line seems more important and attractive than the front lines. Public ministries like preaching have the appearance of being quote-unquote real, and that's where real ministry takes place. However, Paul suggests that the teaching ministry of the church is at least in part just a starting point. Members are given the tools they need to do ministry, and it's ministry that's just as genuine as preaching. I have to brag on a few people in this room, one of them being Jeff Snow. Every single Saturday, he comes here and he lines up these, chur- these, these chairs that you're sitting in right now. These aren't just thrown together. He has a ruler. Jeff, how big is your ruler that you made? It's like It's four feet, it's five feet long, and he's lining it on the carpet. It looks great right now too, by the way, Jeff. I mean, that is a line, brother. Like, it is there. And that line, that yardstick or whatever it is that he's using, he is lining that chair up. Oh my goodness. And that line, it's a, Jeff, it's a little, it's okay, I think it's just the front, but no one's sitting there, so it doesn't matter anyway, right? All that to say, Jeff is here every single Saturday putting in the work to put the chairs here, to put flags out by the doors so that other members, when they come on Sundays, they're taking them to the front. They're take Jim, where's Jim? Jim, how, Jim, you're 72 years old. I'm not trying to like, 72 years young. How about that? I love this brother to death. He shows up almost as early as I do. And he's here and he opens those doors and he takes those giant 20-foot flags or whatever they are and he takes them out to the curb every single Sunday. And he's putting those A-frames out and he's putting the flags out on that little ramp. Why do we have that flag? It doesn't, I don't know. It's just, so, it's just aesthetic. It looks good. There's no reason, like you're not walking through a veiled place or anything. It's just because it's there. But friends, and listen, I would love to highlight every single one of you who have done things around here. It would take up all our time. That's why we're going to do some of that next week to highlight what unity God is creating in this place. You see, I'm not asking for you to take Jeff's or Jim's spot. I'm asking you to add to it. I'm asking you to identify where it is in this church that you might be able to do something. Brad, for instance, he's not here. He's with the kids. God bless him and his wife, Jen. They're with the kids right now. He was here yesterday trimming hedges. And cutting them down, making this place look pretty. We don't even own the building. And he's making this place look great. Imagine if we owned it, what this place would look like. Good Lord. The reality is that people are using their gifts, not so that they can please me. If they are, it's not working. (laughs) But because they're doing it because they love God. And Jeff, as much as he lines his chairs up, you know what he does every single Saturday? As he's putting them out, he prays over every single chair. Lord, whoever sits on that on Sunday... 
Let them see Jesus. Let them see Jesus. And look at what the ministry that God is doing here in our church. You see, pre- <laughs> that's right. Amen. You know, you guys should clap more just so you know. Like it, it kind of helps a little bit just to make sure you're awake. Um, all that to say, so often when I hear from young people like, I want to get into ministry, I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I've been working on a sermon and, you know, I've been prepping something. Like, I think I, I can teach. It's like, that's great. Why don't you help me? Let's come over to the church and uh, help me clean and, you know, take some trash out and stuff. They're like, well, that doesn't, what, that, hold on. Wait a second. No, no, I, I crafted a sermon. And um, if you could just like record it and like, so I can upload it to my Instagram reel, like I'm going to put those closed captions on it that every pastor does across their little video. And it's going to get all these likes and I'm going to, I'm going to be influential. I'm going to have all this ministry opportunity. Wow. Praise God. Who cares? We seem to allow celebrity culture to infiltrate our worth and our meaning behind our ministry accomplishments. If you didn't post it, did it even happen? People do that because it seems less glamorous and less significant. This is where the power is. But look at what Paul highlights throughout the rest of Ephesians as the work of ministry. I didn't list it up on the screen because it's too long. What does the church's ministry prepare us to do? It equips us, Ephesians 4.15, to put away slander, falsehood, white lies, and speak truth from a heart of love. Ephesians 4.28 and Ephesians 6, to work hard at our jobs. Ephesians 4.28 again, to put to death stinginess and share what we have with others. Ephesians 4.29, one of the first things I ever had to memorize because I had a lot of corrupting talk coming out of my mouth, full of dishwasher soap and stuff. We'll talk about that next week. Refrain, maybe not next week, in, in, the, in the future. Refrain from dirty jokes, profanity, and other corrupting talk. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and forgive one another. Ephesians 5, ministry happens by avoiding being deceived by false doctrine, by husbands loving their wives, by wives loving their husbands, to raising our children in a way that honors the Lord, and Ephesians 6, 9, to treat employees equitably and justly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those are just nine mentions of what the work of ministry is supposed to accomplish in you. What does real ministry look like for Paul? It looks like two young moms putting aside rivalry in comparison to love and serve one another. Oh, look at my six-month-old took his first step. He's so advanced. Oh, well, I shop at Lululemon. And no, I don't know if they have Lululemon kids or something. It was the first thing that popped up. You know what real ministry looks like? It looks like a young man refusing to tell a crude joke for a cheap laugh and instead choosing words that build up. It looks like cheerfully punching numbers into a spreadsheet from nine to five as an act of devotion to the Lord. If you need spreadsheet help, Dunkwoods, he loves his spreadsheets, my goodness. If you want to know what real ministry looks like, it looks like a man laboring to help his wife spiritually thrive even as he overlooks her unfair criticism. It looks like a wife choosing to honor her husband even when given the opportunity to speak disrespectfully about him. It looks like inviting people to a meal after church, sharing the gospel with a neighbor, or sending an email to a discouraged brother. None of these actions, of course, look glamorous. But for Paul, this is what he means by ministry. Pastors teach and preach 
to fuel this type of work amongst its members. You see, real ministry is where the power of the ministry is in the hands of its members. In your hands, this church thrives. In my hands, I'm only equipping. I'm just opening my hand and you're, you're taking from it. That is the beauty of what it means to be the church. Well, how long should I be serving then? We'll look at verse 13. I'm glad it answers it for us. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's how long you should be serving. So I should just serve for the rest of my life. Yes. Until we all attain to the unity of faith. Well, what's the purpose for all this ministry? It's about growing up. It's about becoming mature. You see, everything that happens in the church is about preparing you for spiritual maturity. But if that's the case, then it means that we're all immature and we wouldn't need the church. You see, this letter is not putting it in a positive way. It's got some negativity to it as well. Verse 14, Paul says, so that we may no longer be children. He's using language to say, you're a bunch of babies. And you're like, how dare you? And it's like, well, see, told you. Like, you can't call me baby. Well, I just did. But because Paul told us that we are all. And here's the crazy thing. The apostle Paul, right? He wrote a third of the New Testament, two thirds of the New Testament. I don't know whatever stat that is. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And here's the thing. He's calling himself immature. This guy who wrote most of the Bible is saying, I am just as immature as you. So it's like, whoa, hold on. I'm not even close to you, bro. You're calling yourself immature, and now I have to realize, like, oh, shoot, maybe I do need to grow up. And he says, so that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in their deceitful schemes. Paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, he says, quote, no prolonged infancies among us, please. We will not tolerate babies in the woods, small children who are easy prey for predators. You see, we are spiritual babies. And the reason we need to be a part of the church is because otherwise we stay infants. Notice how Paul says we need the ministry of the church. We need to grow up. We need to become adults in our doctrine. Now, all of this is going on so that we may not be children anymore. That's Paul talking. He's an apostle. And what that means that even he as an apostle is spiritually immature. He falls short of being mature and being like Christ. What does that say about us then? If Paul is calling himself immature, then we must be really immature. If Paul is a toddler, we are newborns. What is Paul saying? He says, well, you have the life of God in you, but you are still a spiritual baby. First Peter chapter one and two says, since you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Friends, if you have tasted that the Lord is good and all you have had was a taste, I hope and pray that by the Spirit of God you recognize that that's a familiar taste and that it stays on your palate. Jerry Bridges says, quote, the very first temptation in the history of mankind was the temptation to be discontent. That is exactly what discontentment is. It's a questioning of the goodness of God. Point number three as we wrap up, 
We looked at what it means to be a Christian. Who is a Christian? How should they function? Ministry in the church. Now the third one is how not to be a Christian. Paul emphasizes this as well. When you become a Christian, you are like a new infant. You get this new life, but to stay an infant is not okay. And Paul says, we don't want to stay infants. So then what does it mean to be a spiritual baby? Well, Paul alludes to a few things to help us out. He gives us three markers of spiritual infancy. Number one, a lack of discernment. He says, we are actually being deceived by this craftiness. We are children that are tossed to and fro. We don't have any type of discernment as to what it is we are supposed to be. You see, an infant, if you're familiar with them, they have no idea what is good or bad, healthy or not. Whatever they find, whatever they can grab, where does it go? Directly in their mouth. Everything. Oh, look, something on the floor. Mouth. Oh, look, a block. Mouth. Oh, look, a mouse. Mouth. I hope that hasn't happened. I don't know why I just used that example, but I did. We have plenty of babies and infants here at our church. Just watch one of them at church today. You will see very quickly how they have no discernment. Parents have to keep things away off of the floor. That's how spiritual babies are too. Because when it comes to teaching, you can't tell the difference between good teaching, simple teaching, or even poisonous teaching. So unless you know your way around the Bible, unless you grow in your understanding of who God is, you will remain a spiritual infant. At that same time, this should be encouraging to a degree because we know, as they say, the days are long, but the years are short. In this case, we can also exclaim how in a world of instant gratification, the formula for the Christian is not the same. Babies are not rolling over right away or crawling or walking, saying their first words immediately. Over time, they will do those things. And before you know it, they're graduating college. I don't want to think about that road. It's going to make me start crying because I have to walk down the aisle twice. If you've ever done that, please write a book so I can read it and be prepared. Let's meet up. Let's talk because I'm already not ready. And they're about 40 years from walking down the aisle. Point number two, a lack of discernment. Number two, spiritual infancy means that we are self-centered. What does Paul say in verse two? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, there's some sort of concern about their spiritual maturity. And one of the indicators of self-centeredness is making things of God about you. Babies are self-centered people. They want what they want, when they want it, and when they don't get it, they cry or whine and fuss until they get it or until they're put in their place. As they get older, we have to teach our kids that phrase, sharing is caring, right? Don't just grab whatever you want. You have to train them that there are other life forms out there besides themselves. And we have to do that spiritually as well. We can't think that church is about me and what am I going to get out of this? How is the pastor going to speak into my life? Maybe that's accomplished. That's great. Praise God. Because it means that you're listening and it means that you're understanding what God's word is saying. Because it says that it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Bible says about itself, it does not return void. So if it goes out in your life and you're hearing the words and you're living by them, you will see the power truly happen. Do you fuss when you don't get what you want when you prayed for it? 
You have to be reminded to share your things. Pastor better not talk about my wallet. Do you complain and whine because you had to do something you didn't want to do? You see, your desires are not the only ones that exist in this world. In fact, Paul says in Philippians, the book after this one, in Philippians chapter two, he says, put this mind of Christ on you that you would consider the interests of others above your own. Stop being so absorbed in yourself. And thirdly, another marker of spiritual infancy is an instability. They are unstable. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. My oldest daughter, when she was nine months old, she started walking. I know, she's very advanced. It's, it's a great thing. When she stood up for the first time, though, she wasn't rock solid. Her knees were wobbly, her arms were flailing, and each time she took her hands off the table, she would fall on the ground. There was one song in particular, we would turn on this beautiful medley, and she could be playing, throwing toys, but as soon as that song came on, she would stop everything she was doing and listen to that song. But she also did that when she saw a light, a dog, something that would distract her, and her attention would move rapidly all around the room, distracting her in every way. They can't keep their attention on anything, and of course, they are babies, and they are cute, and they will eventually grow up out of that. The question is, are you spiritually distracted? Are you spiritually unstable? If you come to church service, and you get convicted, and you don't follow through, you're a spiritual baby. You're like, no, I'm not. How could you say that? Told you. If you constantly need God to intervene and come up with great new answers to prayers, you're a spiritual baby. Eugene Peterson calls this idea of growing up, it's a long obedience in the same direction. So what does all of this mean? Well, it's a longer maturity that will lead to a deeper unity. So often throughout the New Testament, there is an indication that older women are to come alongside younger women to teach them about the faith. How are you doing that? Older women, how are you doing that for the younger women? Younger women, who are you asking to do that for you? There is often a significance about the older men in the church raising up the next generation of the younger men in the church. Older men, who are you discipling? Younger men, who are you asking to disciple you? We are not saved by being mature. We are not saved by having it all together. We are saved when we are united to Christ at the cross. Okay, well, if I'm this spiritually immature baby, how do I grow out of it? I'm glad you asked. Ask yourself these two questions. Or really there's three, but one is two questions and then two is a second question. Am I more humble? Am I more happy? I know I I think the grammar is happier but I was going with like alliteration to keep it together. Am I more humble? Am I happier? Number two, do I have the courage to ask somebody who knows whether or not this is true? You see, you can't self-identify what's going on in here. You cannot self-medicate yourself and think, "Um, I either have a fever or I have cancer. Don't go to WebMD. You can't go to yourself and be like, well, I can't feel my fingers, so it's either I slept on it wrong or I have necrosis or something like that. Like, do not self-medicate. Do not self-diagnose yourself. Go to the proper people that need to do it for you. 
If you are married in this room, start with your spouse. And they're like, I'm glad you asked. And they're going to rip out the scroll. That thing's going to roll all the way down the aisle because they know and see firsthand the things in which you can grow up in. But brothers, if, you're af- if your wife asks you, just mention one thing. Just slow down a little bit. Let her, let her ease into it. You can handle it. It's okay. Am I more humble? Am I more happy? And do I have the courage to ask somebody who knows whether or not this is true? You know why this church exists? To ask these types of questions to each other. Whoa, time out, bro. Like, hey, I'm just trying to get over the idea that you told me my family's my ministry and now I need to serve at the church. I'm still trying to figure that out. Great, while you're figuring that out, go find someone else who's serving somewhere else and start serving alongside them. Have the courage to ask someone in this room, hey, I trust you. I believe that if I ask you this question, your intention for my life is actually for my benefit and for the glory of God, not to start drama and not to be all gossipy about it. But can you maybe come to me with coffee, hear my story and see, are you noticing more humility in my life? Do I seem more happy in my life? And can you help me identify maybe in areas of my life where I'm not doing that? You see, unity is the destination and maturity is the path to get there. There is no deeper walking with God. There is not growing up. There is no eating solid foods while walking with God by yourself. Maybe that's the breakthrough someone needs to hear today. You've been mystified and lured by this idea that you can keep your sins to yourself and grow out of them yourself at the same time, that you can watch church online and that be your version of church. It may just be the most difficult thing you do on earth to ask someone for help, but it will also at the same time become the most freeing thing you experience on earth. As you become more mature in your faith, the more one you become, the more unified you become. And before we wrap up, we need to know what it is exactly that we are unifying towards. There is a goal. Some would say if we only evangelized more, if we only discipled more, if we only fed more homeless, if we only reached the next generation more, if we only were at more planned parenthoods to stop abortions, if only we were in the prison sharing Christ with inmates more, if only, if only, if only, Why focus on one when you can have them all? Verse 16 says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, notice it doesn't say everyone needs to get on the evangelism arm and be that. You're like, well, what what about the other arm? Doesn't matter what that arm's doing. Get on the evangelism arm. Get on the homeless arm. We need to be the arm. Well, what about these? What about the other joints and the ligaments and the limbs that are attached to this body? And it says when the body, when every part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, we cannot limit our ability to becoming a quote unquote, whatever you want to fill in right there type of church. Well, we're an evangelizing church. Well, we're a small group church. Well, we we really focus on VBS church. Well, we really focus on this. No, 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 no. Time out, pause, cancel, delete, control, alt, delete. I don't know what you gotta do. Get that out of your mind. We are not any of those things. We are all those things. We are a gospel church. We must view what we do as all things as such, a gospel church. Now go and do those things. What? Me? 
Yes, I am the equipper and you are the equipped. But Lord, I don't know. You know where you need to go. Well, I don't know how. Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 15 and then we'll pray. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. You will not grow. I will not grow without a community of love and truth. Tim Keller says, quote, absolute honesty that is saturated with the sweetness of God's love. That's what that verse means. You see, love without truth and truth without love is a deadly combination. When you love without truth, you don't want to offend anyone, yet they need an outside voice to truly find who they are. When you tell people the truth without love, you are abrasive, you come off harsh. Love without truth is not love. And truth without love is not truth. Nobody in this room is capable of keeping both of those things together. You will not perfectly love and you will not perfectly submit to truth all together. You need other people in your life to balance you out. If you love people, praise God, but you need a little bit of truth. And if you're a truth person and you have everything you know the Bible says, you need someone who's loving to help come alongside you. I told you earlier, I'm, I'm the general in my parenting. My wife is the peacemaker. And I grew up with this reality of, hey, dad takes care of things and he's the general and just wait till your dad comes home. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I deserved it most of the time. And there is the general in me that wants, I want justice. I want people who get in order and my house is clean and there's not balloons in my backyard because all the kids from our neighborhood were in my trampoline yesterday. And I'm serious, it happened. And I was like, oh, they got to clean that right there. But you know what? Lindsay's like, guys, you got to go clean the backyard. Okay. I was like, how did they do that? I'd have been like, go clean it right now. And they're like, okay, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And they're going to remember that for the rest of their lives. You see, you need a balance. If you're truth, you need love. If you're love, you need truth. And there's someone in here who can help balance you out. Find that person in this room. Don't leave without finding them. Or maybe leave and pray, Lord, who is that person? And come back next week and identify who that person can be for you. Let's pray.